It's not cranberry sauce. That's not cranberry sauce. Oh, fuck. <laughs> We're back to an old favorite of ours, because there is honestly not much in the barrel for Thanksgiving horror, so what better way to celebrate Thanksgiving than return to an old favorite and expose a guest to this movie as well? Hell yeah. So yeah, this is our Thanksgiving extravaganza, where we are once again going to be covering 1983? 1987? Question mark. Slasher. Nightmare at Shadow Woods complex. So yeah, we are going to be discussing this shit show. I can't believe this fucking movie is the one that got one of its titles to just be Slasher. <laughs> but anyway, we uh, we are Watch of Dare, a horror movie podcast in which myself, a coward, and my co-host, Movie Monster Boy Aaron, watch horror movies and discuss the fears and phobias and social relevancy related to these movies and just how scary they are and how acceptable they are to watch for cowards like me or fanatics like Aaron. With all that said, we have a guest that we haven't had in a while returning, Dr. Jeff, our buddy from college. He was on our episode on The Nightmare. How you doing, Jeff? Did you like the movie? I loved it. I loved it. Hell yeah. yeah. <laughs> we thought you would. I'm sure you have plenty to say with how accurate the mental health portrayal is. In- oh my gosh, Yeah, I'm man. curious to know what your thoughts are on twins, on the uh, mm-hmm. anatomical mm-hmm. stuff in this movie. The doctor's mm-hmm. choices. Oh yeah. man. Hell yeah. This will be a fun time. By the Wait, um, Aaron, you uh, mentioned something. You said questionable 1983, 1987. What is questionable there about the time frame? So we'll get into a little bit deeper just to kind of give you some backstory. But this is one of those movies where they shot it for a release in 83. So they probably shot it in like, let's say, 82. And it just got shelved for four years and didn't come out until 87. Mm. That happens to lots of movies, unfortunately, especially with like low budget stuff, low budget horror, especially. So yeah, this is a... uh, uh, do we call it 83? Do we call it 87? Da, da, da. Do we call it 88? Because this movie was also released four different times under four different titles. So, <laughs> hell yeah. But overall, this is one that disappeared for a long time. Arrow put out a fantastic 2K restoration of it on Blu-ray a few years back. And this movie has taken up way more brain space for me than it should for the last five years. Me too now because you exposed it to me. (laughs) I dropped the cranberry line in like half our fucking episodes. (laughs) (laughs) I've heard you say that before and I was wondering what the hell you're talking about. Yeah, blood rage. That's why. Also, that surprises me about the 1983 thing because Mark Soper, that's the guy who played Terry, he would have been 24 years old at that time and he definitely does not look 24 he looks a very hard 24 to me (laughs) no you you got a point there but uh since we have you back and it's been a minute jeff before we dive into the movie we like to uh discuss other horror that we have consumed lately be it other movies video games tv shows books etc we Mm -hmm. recommend them to each other and for our audience so we usually go guest first on that have you been getting into any other horror lately or since you came on to the episode last time unfortunately due to my job i didn't have a whole lot of time to explore anything new recently as far as movies. Watched a lot of repeats for um, Halloween this year. Watched Dell and Tucker vs. Evil. Hell yeah. Yeah, which, it was, which was is fun. a fun movie. Also, I did yeah. start the Evil Dead series, which Hell yeah. is really good. I've really enjoyed that. I've only gotten to like the beginning of um, the second Evil Dead, but that is a damn good show. Of course, I always repeat myself, Trick or Treat, The Witch, AM1200, you know, that's one I'm always gonna talk about. I, I did watch that again this month, and it still, to me, was like, oh man, that is such a good Lovecraftian film when it's so hard to make a good Lovecraftian horror film. AM1200 just 
hit it for me. Really hit it for me. I need to go back and try to watch it. I pulled it up a couple of weeks ago when I was just looking for anything to watch during October and I could not get it to load on Vimeo for some reason. I don't know if Vimeo was down or what. So I need to like return back to actually sit and watch it. I think it's on YouTube now. I think they uh, uploaded it to YouTube now. Spoiler alert. We'll probably actually do it in some capacity on this episode sooner or later mm -hmm. um, and have you even back on Jeff. But I want to say that it is on YouTube because I took a look for it when you had brought it up in the past. So yeah, I think it's on YouTube. More so, I've been listening to Creepypasta readers on YouTube. Okay. Nice. We actually have a couple that follow us on Twitter and we follow them. So it seems like a pretty big community because there, there are quite a lot of them. Yeah, there's Dark Somnium, uh, Mr. Creeps. Uh, one of the guys has like a real heavy Orange County, Californian accent, which honestly doesn't do any favors for it when he's reading. Cause he, he's, he just, like Surfer Bro accent? Yes. Okay. Yeah, but he has a lot of followers, and I've he picks good stories, but it's just really weird listening to him. So there's actually a lot of uh, creepypastas that I've discovered recently. There's the Search and Rescue series, the one that's about the forest ranger, the Search and Rescue with the Stairs. That one's a classic. I, I love that one. Yeah. The Disappearance of Ashley, Kansas is a really good one. There's one that's called, it's just called Psychosis. I think that's one of my favorite ones. It's a, probably a 30 minute if it's being read, but Psychosis is probably one of my favorite creepypastas. And, you know, I saw World War Z a long time ago, the one with Brad Pitt. I did not like it. I didn't really care for it. Yeah, the movie's not good. I, then I picked up the book in the last year, and the book was freaking amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So there are people who like the movie um, and are think it was underrated and all that. And I, I get it, because I've seen the movie, too, and there are aspects of it that are enjoyable. And some people really do like zombies being like ants, which I still don't like, but whatever. But I think the reason why that movie is so disappointing is because the source material is is so much better than the actual movie. Yeah, it's World yeah. War Z in name only. I think if you just divorced the two mm -hmm. and just renamed the movie essentially it would be a perfectly fine popcorn zombie movie but it's nothing like the book at all whatsoever so yeah it's just kind of one of those okay god i guess you still have both things obviously so you can enjoy them independently but i would still like to see an anthology tv show i would love that for world war z a different episode is a different person doing their interview yeah that or you know like a uh was it ken burns that does like the docuseries yeah something like that that's like a, a reality like docu series where they're doing actual interviews yeah. like they used to do on the History Channel with World War II. I think that would do very well. It was a really good book. Daywan, did you did you end up reading the book? I don't think I did. I don't think I ever got around to that. So I would highly suggest getting the audiobook and listening to it in the next three or four months. I have listened to that audiobook probably four or five times. It's so well written. And they mentioned that bridge that goes from, you know, Hattiesburg to New Orleans. There's a big scene that takes place on that bridge. You know, the one that's uh, a stretch over a, like a bunch of swamp. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there's there's one that's right there, and it's just such a familiar setting because I've traveled that road so many times. Yeah, I'll have to uh, put that on my radar then. And completely non-horror related. You know what book just really sucked? <laughs> the audiobook sucked <laughs> twice as much, but I have listened to it multiple times because regardless of how much I know it objectively sucks, and then, like I listen to it and I hate it, but I still find it comfy, is uh, Ready Player One. It's such a terrible book. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The writing is objectively so terrible, and the characters are just... It's like looking at a road accident I can't take my eyes off of. I just listened to it again, like, last week. That's why I say that. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely trading in a lot of nostalgia 
nostalgia porn, essentially. And that's the stuff that you respond to because you like all of those things. Yeah, it's totally subconscious. So it's not that you're responding to the book necessarily. It's just, oh yeah, I also like Back to the Future, <laughs> you know? So it's like, okay, whatever. Like, I guess there's nothing wrong with enjoying the things that you enjoy. I mean, that's, you know, that's all we're doing on our fucking podcast. Let's be real, is we're just kind of sitting around in Chris Farley and our way through these movies we enjoy. But as far as let's call this a valuable piece of writing, I mean, it's not doing anything. It's not doing anything for me, at least. It's just like, hey, here's a bunch of shit that you already enjoy. Let me just reference it and not yeah. really do anything new with it necessarily. Yeah. It's literally a nice guy TM just reading off Wikipedia pages of video games and songs and videos from like the 1980s. Yeah. Like that's literally what it is. Yeah. There are certainly movies that do the same thing to varying degrees of success. You know, there are especially like horror movies that do the same thing where a lot of people will say like, hey, I really enjoyed this because it reminds me of XYZ. I mean, I honestly have a movie that I'm going to talk about in a second in that vein. Well, and I think a better version of that that a lot of people also have responded positively to and granted, even though Aaron and I are both kind of critical of Stranger Things. I do have to give Stranger Things credit of being like nostalgia porn, but still also standing alone on its own mm-hmm. in uh, enough ways that it's at least doing more for what it's riffing on than like Ready Player. Ready Player One literally, like you said, Jeff, it may as well just be goddamn Wikipedia pages of like, remember when you liked this thing in the 90s <laughs> <Yeah>. or the <laughs> 80s? Like that's pretty much all Ready yeah, Player yeah. One is to me. There's literally just some, some pages or some sections that he's just literally listing off robots from animes and it's just like it must be like two pages of that blows my mind but again it's comfy and irritating at the same time but it's comfy well I can't argue against that I mean if you like it and it's something that you like listening to even if it is also frustrating like hey more power to you yeah anyway I was just frustrated with myself about it so I kind of needed to get that off my chest (laughs) nice (laughs) any horror (laughs) recommendation no I'm kidding Yeah, so back to the horror. Um, I would check out that creepypasta psychosis that I was talking about and World War Z. All right, Derek, what you got? I think I brought this up back on Hocus Pocus episode. Uh, making my way through that Stephen King short story collection called Skeleton Crew. I finished up The Mist, which was good. I know how the movie adaptation ends, and between it versus the book, honestly, I don't know which ending I like more. The movie one sounds a fuck ton more shocking, and it is bleak, and the ending in the book without spoiling anything is a little more hopeful, but also pretty bleak, so I'm not quite sure which ending I would prefer but either way I do recommend The Mist but uh, I read a few more of the uh, short stories in there. There's one called Here There Be Tigers. Tigers is spelled T-Y-G-E-R-S that he published way back in like 1968 in a literature magazine or something. Okay, It was a really fucking short story. It was like a five page short story about uh, school kids and one of the kids has to go to the bathroom. He goes in there and whoops there's an actual tiger in the bathroom for some reason. Sure. (laughs) It was like a fun short four or five page like short story. The next one is one of my favorite things that Stephen King does. And I know it's one that he both is praised for and made fun of for, but it's a short story called The Monkey. And it takes the idea of an inanimate object being sinister for some reason. 
no explanation as to why it's sinister. Kind of like objects of power and sure. specifically in the video game control. But in this case, this monkey is borderline demonic and is kind of like a harbinger of death. And it's one of those like monkey toys that has the symbols and like claps the symbols together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I've heard of this one now. It's a pretty good story. It's pretty fun. It goes through like this guy's life up till now when he's a parent with his own son and like his interactions with this monkey because like him and his family return to his parents home to like take care of things after one of the parents dies and he finds this monkey again and freaks the fuck out because he thought he got rid of it when he was younger yeah and it goes into like why he's freaking out over this monkey and what this monkey actually is doing it's pretty fun again it does the fun stephen king trope of weird inanimate object has some sinister power behind it coming to life blah 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 the next short story i read out of this collection and this one is fucking fascinating horrifying problematic even a little bit like we'll put a trigger warning on this it's a short story he wrote originally back in 1968 and it got published in the 80s like with skeleton crew called kane rose up and kane rose up is this horror short story about this depressed homicidal college student who goes on a sniper shooting spree okay the short story follows his day and leading up to him pulling out the sniper rifle and then ends with him starting a spree like he kills a couple people and then it, and it goes from there and then it ends so this sounds very whitmore inspired i'm assuming yeah i'm guessing so i tried to look up what inspired this and everything like i said it was late 60s when he originally wrote it it was probably the darkest thing i think i've read from stephen king in terms of real life fucking horrifying shit especially reading this story this short story kane rose up in this day and age when like mass shootings have been such it happens all the fucking time yeah yeah like such a part of our culture now it got me like looking into it a little bit more and he actually published a book back in like 1977 called rage which i never heard of this book apparently it got pulled from print back in 2013 huh. and it's a whole novel all about school shootings he pulled it from print back in 2013 or 2012 or whenever and actually winded up writing an anti-firearm essay after he pulled that from print and a lot of the connections in this novel were related to real school shootings which is kind of what led to it becoming like this thing that he kind of would rather just put behind him yeah um i don't know anything about rage but i don't think i would recommend it because like it's actual real life school shootings a pretty fucking rough subject to like deal with especially if you're american yeah you can't say you recommend it because it's fucked up but it was scary and affecting and had an impact on you that it's at least worth bringing up yeah and it's just interesting that he wrote rage in 1977 and then wrote this short story kane rose up in the late 60s but i am also like i have to applaud king for like allowing rage to kind of fall out of print and i have no idea if like in newer publications of skeleton crew that he took kane rose up out or not because the copy i have is i got from like a used bookstore and it's the same copy that was published back in the fucking 80s or early 90s yeah so just be ready if you do check this book out that the fourth or fifth short story kane rose up has to do with school shooting and it's pretty fucking brutal because it's from the perspective of the shooter honestly kind of reminded me the way he wrote it it was so different from his regular style it almost reminded me of cormac mccarthy's style of writing especially when blood meridian of just like that really dark really fucking depressing chilling writing 
writing style. And that's as far as I've gotten. I'm in the middle of the next short story called Mrs. Todd's Shortcut, but I haven't really gotten far enough into that one yet to form an opinion. And I still got the rest of the book, which has a bunch of other short stories in it. So as I get make my way through it, I might recommend it again. I might not. Either way, I, I have enjoyed Skeleton Crew, if for nothing else, for the mist and the couple short stories I've gotten through. Another book I wanted to recommend, and this is one I actually read two or three years ago, but it I've been kind of organizing my bookshelves recently and I found it and forgot about it a little bit and I wanted to bring it up again because it is a great horror novel and especially with you on Jeff I think you would like this book it's called American Elsewhere Mm -hmm. the author is Robert Jackson Bennett published back in like February 2013 and it's a big fucking book but it has so many like horror tropes I love to it so just the basic premise it follows like the perspective of multiple people kind of like Game of Thrones I guess but the main focus character is this cop who finds out she inherits this house after her mother dies and her father dies in a town called Wink, New Mexico, which is a town that is not on any maps. Most people don't even know it exists or where it is. So she goes there to figure out where did this fucking house come from? I had no idea that this house was in our family's name. Why did my parents own it? What's up with this town? She gets there and as like you see it through her perspective and perspective of other town members and people in the book, number one horror trope that I love. It's a town with a dark secret. Time is literally fucking broken in this town. No one goes out at night. No one goes into the woods that far at night. And it starts off as like kind of odd and quirky, but with undertones of horror. And then it just starts going into straight fucking Cthulhu. Like if you see this unknowable being, you'll immediately commit suicide type of horror. It's Cthulhu without the Cthulhu. Like it's sure he's influenced by that. And a lot of the horror in it is kind of Lovecraftian, but he makes his own like kind of modern sci-fi horror spin on it and I don't want to say too much more about it because it is a book that is the less you know the better it is going into it but if it sounds like something you want to check out if you're jonesing for modern horror literature fucking American Elsewhere is pretty top-notch Jeff have you read this book or heard about it no i've never i've never heard of it but i just looked it up and they have an audiobook so i'll probably get that you know i have a, a free credit from audible right now and i've got to decide between that and you know ready player two is coming out this month so <laughs> <laughs> So, so, you know, either or. Tough choices. I highly recommend American Elsewhere. It's pretty fucking great. Yeah, it's a slow build, but it hits on like all those horrors I love. I'm such a sucker for like Strange Town, has dark secret, starts off odd and progressively gets more and more horrific as you find out more stuff about it. It's honestly basically a more terrifying Night Vale from like Welcome to Night Vale. This town where like all this weird shit is happening, all kind of vaguely connected, but also it's kind of hard to tell what's what but American Elsewhere and then kind of just one more recommendation moving away from novels and books. Aaron and I have kind of a small group with our friends of album of the week recommendations where we take turns recommending an album to each other and we all listen to it and we all critique it and all that. One of the recent picks was from my sister-in-law Lauren who has been on a bunch of her episodes most recently Hocus Pocus and uh, Hacks On. Her pick was this album called Everything is Fine by Omigo the Devil and I wanted to recommend this one because it deals with a lot of horror themes. Yeah, It's definitely. a gothic country singer-songwriter dark folk style album. But the thing I love about this album is that Amigo the Devil, he's not afraid to just stay in one tone because I do find that like dark folk and even dark country sometimes can get a little boring like if they stay in that just kind of slower tone. And there are definitely like slower, more folky songs in this album. But he has kind of a wide range of emotion in it. The lyrics go all around from ominous 
this to like even tongue in cheek. A lot of it is self-hatred. A lot of it is darkness. It has one of the darkest songs I think I've ever heard called The Dreamer, which does like my favorite trope that dark folk and dark country does so well. A beautiful melody, but if you actually pay attention to the lyrics, it's really fucking dark and messed up. And I just wanted to shout this album out. It's a good one that she recommended the kind of like towards the end of October and the Halloween, but it's one I've been revisiting since that she recommended it. Aaron, I know you've listened to it too, but I personally think it's a great horror recommendation just if you're looking for darker stuff to listen to. Yeah, I mean, if you're into Tom Waits, anything Nick Cave related, it's very much along the lines of those two guys tonally. It's like more accessible than them. I mean, not not that yeah, anything is wrong agree. with them. They are great, don't get me wrong. Like, Nick Cave and Tom Waits are fucking master workers, but like... This guy's voice is more accessible than Tom Waits, who sounds like he gargles hot asphalt every morning. <laughs> and Mm -hmm. Nick Cave can definitely be a little intense for some people so like it is kind of a more accessible is the best word I wouldn't say simple and I wouldn't say basic and I wouldn't say mainstream or anything like that it's just if you want to get into that style this is a little more start here and see if you dig it but I I enjoyed that album a lot as well I've got it pulled up so I'll make sure to listen to it this week awesome but yeah, that's all I got for my recommendations, so I'll shove it over to you, Aaron. Cool. Well, um, I also was in kind of a weird, dark mood and watched a couple of fairly dark and fucked up movies in the last few days. I don't know why, necessarily, because my mood is not necessarily in this place, but maybe I'm popping these movies on now because I'm not in such a weird, dark headspace and I can handle these movies now as opposed to normal times. So I got four movie recommendations. One is I finally got around to watching Haunt, which is from Scott Beck and Brian Woods. They are the two guys who wrote A Quiet Place. This is their directorial debut. It was a Shutter exclusive, I believe. It's fine. You know, a lot of people like this movie. That's the only reason I popped it on because I heard nothing but good things about it. It actually just got a Blu-ray release recently. So I thought, you know, okay, let me pop this on and see, you know, what everybody's talking about. It's a really good looking movie. It looks really nice aesthetically it very much has the like modern halloween diy haunted house kind of look to it it's very slick it's very polished it's very good looking for a low budget horror movie just even looking at the images on google it's kind of hard to believe that it's low budget yeah i mean it's a solid looking movie i think it's well directed i think my beef with the movie honestly is just the script It's about a bunch of teens who go to this extreme haunted house, and then once they're in, things start going sideways. And granted, we talk about less is more, and how sometimes you don't like that things are maybe overexplained, or you like how something's a little bit mysterious. This is a movie that makes you think that this entire college town is basically empty, except for these six people. So kind of like Blood Rage, this apartment Uh, complex is fucking empty. (laughs) Right? Aside from one scene at like an actual club on Halloween where all these college students are, it's just these six characters. It's like nobody else is around. It just feels very empty. You don't know anything about why this haunted house is here, why nobody else is at this haunted house, why the haunted house was built, why the people who made it made it, why the people who made it are dot 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 the way that they are, or what their whole story is. Like, you don't really learn anything, but in this kind of movie where it leaves you with way more questions 
at the end that's kind of unsatisfying. Creep is a good example of something that like doesn't explain to you where he came from, what's going on. Sure, but the difference is you're curious about that and it's fun to kind of talk about it and haha like what could be his motivation in Creep. And there's still like a full arc. Yeah, this movie, what is what is going on? It, when I have more questions at the end about what did I just watch and I'm not sure like did I miss something? Like what is going on here? Like that's where, you know, I'm not sure how successful it was necessarily. Like I, again, I liked the tone and the feel. The soundtrack was good. The performances of all these teens was generally pretty solid. It was fine. I just wish that maybe I knew more about what the hell was happening in this movie because it otherwise was just a lot of hey here's this one creepy situation of something that could happen in an extreme haunted house okay cool that's it we're not really going to give you a why or a motivation behind any of it just there it is so it was fine you know i don't feel like it was a waste of time or anything it just didn't quite live up to the hype that i've heard from lots of other people the next one i would bring up is i watched fucking eight millimeter i realized recently with joel schumacher passing that he directed a lot of horror movies you know you think like okay the director of Batman Forever and Batman and Robin. That's, you know, <laughs> what he's most known for now, obviously. But like Jeff mentioned earlier, he directed Flatliners. He did The Lost Boys. He did that movie, The Number 23, with Jim Carrey a few years back. Christ, I forgot about that. Yeah, by the way, was, yeah. that, was that movie any good? It's fun. Uh, it's fun. It's yeah. fun. I think it would have been a better movie with somebody else as the lead, honestly. Yes. That's yes. what I was wondering. Like, I'm... Yeah, if it was a more serious actor than Jim Carrey, it would have been a better movie. It's honestly one of those movies where the premise is more fun than the actual product yeah but uh isn't eight millimeter that fucking one with uh nicholas cage in it? yes <laughs> okay i know which one you're talking about yeah. so i realized upon schumacher's recent passing that there were some movies of his that i had not seen so i figured okay like i've always heard about eight millimeter i remember catching bits and pieces of this on cable years ago in a nutshell nicholas cage is a pi hired by this rich older woman whose husband's passed. And while going through his will and all their stuff in the estate, she finds this one 8mm film roll that appears to be a snuff film. And so she basically hires Nick Cage to find out whether or not it's authentic and why the fuck her husband had it. And it just lets him spiral off into the weird world of dark underground porn and S&M and all of that insanity, right? The cast of this movie is kind of nuts. So it's Nick Cage, and this is late 90s Nick Cage when he was still kind of hair trigger, a <laughs> little bit wild, but still like not in full red box mode yet. Catherine Keener plays his wife. Joaquin Phoenix is the young guy who moved out to LA with his metal band that didn't take off and now he works at a porn shop and just has all these underworld connections. James Gandolfini is like this really sleazy guy in the porn business. Peter Stormare is like a really skeezy director. Anthony Held, who plays Dr. Chilton and Dude, this Silence of the Lambs is in this it. This fucking cast is wild, man. <laughs> yeah. Fucking Chris Bauer from The Wire is in it as well. Like, it's got a bananas cast. And I, I was thinking, like, this is really fucking dark. Even for a guy who's done some horror movies, this movie in general is really fucking dark. Looked it up. Oh, that makes sense. 
this is the second movie written by the guy who did fucking Seven. So that all tracks now and makes complete sense. Just why was Joel Schumacher, of all people, the one chosen to make this movie? Because there are moments where there's like some genuinely interesting ahead of its time filmmaking aesthetics and the look. Like it's definitely kind of playing off of that Seven idea, but in some ways it feels more modern than 99. But then by the end of the movie, it literally is just Nick Cage and the main bad guy like fighting each other in the rain in a graveyard. It does just kind of have that, oh yeah, this is Joel Schumacher for sure. So that one was definitely kind of wild. That is available on, I watched it on Amazon Prime. It might be in some other spots as well. The last two that I want to mention, and I think that both of y'all would be interested in these. The first one is called Arrebato, aka Rapture. It is a Spanish movie from 1979, directed by Ivan Zulueta. It is a really raw, handmade, just... I'm like, I'm struggling to think of how to describe it. It's just a very, very textural, real-feeling movie that has a wild sense of dread and uneasiness to it. There is a lot of drug use in the movie. I mean, that's kind of like what it all revolves around is these people who are kind of chasing that next high and trying to figure out like how to live with that, without that, etc. But it's a horror movie director who is like a fucking heroin addict and his girlfriend is also an addict as well and it's kind of the two of them like coping. He gets a mysterious package that's a film reel and a cassette tape and a key from a guy that he met years ago only once or twice. This other guy who was a filmmaker who just kind of made these weird personal little homemade films and he like dated the guy's cousin for a while, did some drugs with him this one time, right? But he like gets a package from this guy out of the blue, starts listening to the cassette tape, watching the film, and they kind of go down this crazy rabbit hole where the guy is convinced that his camera is somehow sentient and recording him at night, and he starts recording footage of him sleeping with like a timer interval on there, and he discovers that every night there is a chunk of blank red frames, and every single night there are more and more and more red frames on the camera for some reason. Things get really fucking weird from there as the guy kind of goes down this rabbit hole looking into it. It reminded me a lot of Videodrome or something kind of along those lines. Not necessarily like all the conspiratorial angles, but still a lot of the same crazy obsession with technology and recording yourself and kind of that weird detachment, breaking off a piece of yourself and putting that into the ether and, you know, making that thing last beyond even, like, your existence. It dealt with, like, a lot of wild stuff like that. And, of course, discussions about drug use and how we're dependent on those things. Wild, wild, wild fucking movie. So, that's one that I would definitely recommend. Expand your mind, bro. Yeah, (laughs) that one was bananas. So, I would definitely recommend checking that out. As we talked about before, with my research into psychedelics, one thing that I look into is reading anecdotal reports and about archetypal trips, things that people experience. You know, psychedelics make you very suggestible. Yeah. And so certain 
certain people will experience certain things and it's always a question of did he hear this from someone else and that's why he experienced the same thing this other person experienced or is there some sort of Jungian archetype going on in the back of our minds that we don't know why this manifests in so many people but lately I've been reading trips uh, about people who've taken jimson weed or datara or these other highly anti-cholinergic plants and how many of them talk about seeing the same things over and over a lot of them talk about seeing specifically this one it looks like a hellhound like this demonic dog that's dripping blood from its mouth and it's like reported in certain native american cultures and stuff i i don't know a ton about it other than it's just very strange and creepy uh again possibly it's just all hyper suggestibility that people have read that someone saw this and therefore they expect to see it and it produces um that in their mind but it's always weird when you see these reports of people seeing the same things on a mind-altering substance over and over and over aaron and i have talked about this a little bit here on even on this podcast like in regard to movies we've when it comes to supernatural stuff, be it actual like extra dimensional beings, spirits, whatever, or it being like universal tropes that all of our brains kind of are attached to in some weird yeah. subconscious yeah. way. Either way, it's fucking creepy and yeah. fascinating yeah. at the same time. I do think there's a lot of validity to the universal subconscious mm-hmm. and like universal subconsciousness, different tropes and themes across generations and time periods. And so either way, it's kind of fascinating to and creepy to think about like whether a ghost is actually a ghost or it's a thought form that all of us have shared genetically or whatever through history yeah 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 yeah. weird stuff weird stuff anyway that's all and then the last one i'll mention is brandon cronenberg's new movie possessor which was fantastic awesome i'm glad it turned out good because peek behind the curtain into aaron and i becoming good friends we bonded over cronenberg specifically like me wanting to check out videodrome and you showing me videodrome for the first time and me fucking loving videodrome so i'm glad that with his son kind of getting into the business his work is well received and to the point that i made earlier this is the movie that i mentioned is a lot of nostalgia so yes those are the things that i am responding to brandon Cron- Cronenberg is definitely operating in all the same arenas as his father. It's all the same themes. It's all the same ideas. He is just taking a more comprehensive modern lens to them. I have mentioned antiviral on the show before. That's his feature from 2012. So he's definitely not as prolific as his dad. He's done some short films, but this is really only the second full-blown movie from him. Antiviral is very much the like body horror idea too of we now have this weird underground black market of people that are collecting and like trading and selling celebrity illnesses. So like if, you know, some pop star has the flu, we're going to send people into their hotel room when they're not there to like collect samples of like snot off tissues and we're literally going to replicate and sell this pop star's version of a flu to fans. <laughs> That's such oh, a wild so... concept. <laughs> right? So this movie is Andrea Riseborough from Mandy Birdman she is a hit woman working for a giant weird shadow corporation that you don't really ever find out a whole lot about Jennifer Jason Lee is her handler and she basically possesses other people through some technological means it's not like a possessor like a supernatural thing they literally have to kidnap these people sedate them put an implant in their head and she like over the airwaves zaps into them to possess their body and take them over. She assassinates people through these 
other people, right? And then it seemingly is like these weird, random, spree-killing kind of things. And you find out that, of course, this giant shady organization is taking, like, weird hit requests from all these other rich people to do sleazy backdoor financial deals and that kind of thing. Christopher Abbott is in it as kind of the guy that she possesses in the bulk of the story. Sean Bean has a weird cameo in it. Tuppets Middleton. There's lots of other character actors, like Donald Sutherland's son is in this. Very, very interesting. And again, it's all the same stuff that I respond to with David Cronenberg. It's shadowy giant organizations that are seemingly up to no good. It's weird technology that has a biological component that is not really fully explained. Lots of identity crisis. It's lots of body horror stuff. There is some insane gore and violence in the movie. Weird inner struggles of am I happy with my life the way it is? Am I happy with, you know, my family? my job, whatever, and how do I respond to some of that stuff. Visually, it's amazing. The initial scene where she zaps into Christopher Abbott, it is like the best 90s Nine Inch Nails video that never happened. <laughs> Just the way that it looks visually, the effects there are bananas. Really, really solid. I, I really highly enjoyed it. I immediately got on Amazon and like threw that disc in my uh, Christmas wish list. So that is one that I'm definitely looking forward to watching again and I hope that other people check it out. It is available for you to rent or buy digitally right now through iTunes and probably some other platforms and I think it comes out physically in December so it's definitely available for you to grab right now but man it was really fucking good it's one that I really wish I could see in the movie theaters right now if you know things were back to normal. So yeah I I hope that we see more from Brandon Cronenberg and sooner. You know I hope he's maybe going to be a little more prolific after this movie and able to kind of get some more stuff out. But, you know, if it's one of those quality over quantity things and he can only crank out a movie once a decade, I'm fine with that. You know, if they're as good as this one and antiviral... I'm down. So yeah, that's all I got to bring up for this week. Um, We've kind of gone pretty long, but you know, I don't think we're going to be like spending forever talking about this movie that we've already gone through. So before we dig into the movie, one last thing I wanted to throw out there is Aaron and I are probably going to keep up our Spotify playlist. We're going to keep it open, even though it's no longer Halloween. I'm going to keep it pinned on our Twitter for the foreseeable future. So if you want to check out our playlist that Aaron and I made specifically for this last Halloween, but just in general, anytime you want to listen to some creepy music, again, that is W-I-Y-D fall slash spoopy slash Halloween bash playlist. Again, W-I-Y-D fall slash spoopy slash Halloween playlist, or just follow the link on our Twitter. We might need to go to a shorter name, but yeah, definitely just yeah. follow the link on Twitter. Follow the link on Twitter. We may rename it. We'll see. But I'm still kind of throwing music on there here and there as, as I discover stuff or as I'm making my way through like revisiting old stuff that. I find is creepy. If Aaron thinks up any more stuff, he'll send it my way and I'll throw it up on there as well. So just FYI for our listeners, go listen to some creepy music. We made the playlist for y'all. Hell yeah. All right. Buckle up, buckaroos. (laughs) Let's get into, in my mind, the greatest, the just best ever, the only fucking blood rage again a movie that has taken up way too much of my like mental headspace since i first saw it in 2015 and is a movie that i enjoy exposing other people to because it is batshit it's batshit it's incompetent it's 
dangerous. It's hilarious. It's got some heartfelt moments. It's got a lot of Louise Lasser drunkenly eating <laughs> Thanksgiving leftovers off the floor in front of the fridge. It caught me off guard so much. They just so caught me off guard. This week, once again, we are, for the first time ever, revisiting a movie. We are revisiting Blood Rage. Brad and I have an announcement to make. We're going to tie We're the knot. <laughs> Congratulations. I'm happy for you both. I really am. Thanks. <laughs> Here's to the new family. Well, I'd say that this big bird is ready for carving. Terry, you do the Well, seeing as how we have a new head of the family, I think it's time you started pulling your own weight around here. <laughs> Looks like you're gonna get a chance to meet the rest of the family. My psychotic brother just escaped. Would you pass the green beans, please? <laughs> I like to talk about my brother Todd and get the night. Look, you don't understand. He's nuts. That's why they locked him up. <laughs> it's like the rest of your family. <laughs> What's that gun? You know what else Dr. Berman told me? She told me that Todd never killed anybody. It's not cranberry sauce, Artie. It's not cranberry sauce. Okay, so yeah, Hell yeah. as we've explained this earlier, we can't think of a better Thanksgiving-based horror movie. Now, going forward, we'll probably like do other horror around Thanksgiving, but again, like with this year being as ridiculous as it is, we have leaned more into the fun rather than the grimdark, and to kind of keep up with that notion, like we did a cannibal horror movie last episode, gearing up for Thanksgiving, but for Thanksgiving Day itself, we wanted to revisit Blood Rage, but instead of just retreading familiar ground we wanted to get a guest on and we thought what better guest because jeff you are probably the friend who appreciates weird shit the most out of all of our friends and it's been a minute since we had you on so we wanted to expose you to this movie to get your thoughts (laughs) and i fucking forgot like it's been a year since we watched this movie i fucking forgot how much at least like the first 20 or 30 minutes quote unquote deals with mental illness and that like fucking horror 80s batshit way of just like none of it is valid so I wanted to like get your thoughts on it you being a mental health doctor yourself <laughs> what were your thoughts about the doctor in this movie oh my god well, from my point to Jeff you are also one of the best people that I have ever like had drunk conversations with <laughs> three in the morning on the porch and oh, I appreciate it. some of the like wild viewpoints and just new ways of thinking about things and looking at things and details that you pick up on it's the best and that's again like a part of the reason why I was immediately when we were like okay we want to do this movie again who should we invite on Jeff of course Jeff we want to see what he has to say about this movie because this movie has a lot on its mind oh and listen listeners just so you're aware if you want to like hear our actual plot run through listen to last year la- yeah. listen to last year's episode where we did Blood Rage we're not gonna do a plot run through we're gonna let Jeff we're gonna get pick his brain about thoughts and then share stuff that maybe me and Aaron caught this time around on a second watch through if we're retreading old ground we 
apologize. It's been a year. I don't think I re-listened to the old episode. So, you know, we probably will repeat some stuff. But with Jeff here, hopefully it brings a fresh lens to this insane movie, which, by the way, isn't scary at all. Like, if you're worried about that, don't worry about it. It's not that scary. <laughs> no, it's not. And also, um, I, I apologize. I should have gone back and listened to y'all's last Blood Rage episode. But things got so busy over here. I barely found time to watch the movie. But I'm so glad I did. You know, wonderful movie. And to speak to my viewpoints on things the older i've gotten the more i realized like you know i used to take myself so seriously and think i was such a smart guy but it's more like akin to carl pilkington i'm just sort of an idiot asshole yeah i mean <laughs> i think a lot of us, much are, all yeah. of us are along for the ride and we realized yeah it's best to just be along for the ride when it yeah. comes to that stuff yeah, yeah that's right we're all faking it until we make it that's what yeah I've that's so figured true. out as yeah I figured that out more and more as I've gotten older. Yeah, totally. So, Jeff, what are your initial thoughts on this movie as a whole? What did you like about it? What takeaways do you have to get started? All right, first off, I like campy shit. I enjoyed it. I I straight up just enjoyed it. It was a terrible movie in so many respects, but um, I really enjoyed it. You know, it made me think of the way that some of these characters acted. Um, It kind of, in a way, made me reminisce about... um, Have you all watched any of Rob Zombie's random horror films? Yeah. Uh, yeah, here and there a little bit. Like how he depicts like white trash. Sure. Yeah, <laughs> he, he, yeah, which I think he's very good at. It. I think he does a very great job at depicting white trash people and like and they're they're really like crude, stupid sense of humor, like that, that sort of things they joke I, about. I, I, think, I, I think Aaron and I have joked and called a dirt people whore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, he does a good job. At it. Anyway, I felt like the the attitudes that the actors expressed in the movie were just <laughs> I don't know. There's something to to the. Pretty much everybody was just a bad actor. With the exception of Mark Soper not trying to rip off of something that I actually read, but I felt the same way. He wasn't that great of an actor, but he did really differentiate between the Terry and Todd characters a whole lot. He does do a good job of that. I'll give him that. Yeah, I think he did a good job. It's more than just two different hairstyles. Yeah. Yeah. It makes you feel like he's actually got a twin brother that's got a different personality. You know, it's not like I'm just watching someone that they're they're copy of the person. Yeah, it literally feels like a different person. The the main thing I can say is everything just felt so disjointed. In in a good way. Like, but it just felt so disjointed. (laughs) Well, Aaron and I and I know we talked about this in the the first time around, and we've gone back to it here and there whenever we've covered movies like this, and I think I even brought up on one of my recommendations uh, last episode, but even though it's so disjointed, the fact that they're being so genuine about it, even though it's a <laughs> fucking mess, is like, like Aaron said, it's dangerous. It's like a dangerous horror movie in that, like, no fucks given. It's not quite the room, like, where it's, it's so bad it's good, but I mean, there's elements of that, but it's yeah. still like they are just trying their goddamn hardest, and everyone's making choices. Yeah. But- so while we're on that note, one thing that I set out to do, because at this point, this is maybe my like sixth, seventh viewing of this movie at this point. One thing that I kind of tried for this time was let me see if I can actually get a better understanding of where this movie came from, why, what's going on, etc. Because for some reason, I so heavily associate this movie with stuff like The Room or Samurai Cop or Miami Connection. Just movies that have such a singular, one person wrote this, directed this, produced this, starred in it. This is a singular view into a person's mind and psyche. So, for whatever reason, I thought 
in my mind that this movie was kind of this weird singular vision. I mentioned on an episode forever ago that I watched this director's other movie that came out a few years before this one called Scalpel, which has a lot of the same weird themes of not twins necessarily, but like an identity of two people pretending to be each other and this whole like two different sides of one personality who is actually who kind of bullshit. That movie is definitely a lot more lurid than this one, believe it or not. It's definitely a lot sleazier, even though this movie has a lot of nudity and sex and just general 80s bullshit in it. I forgot how much nudity it had until yeah. two. I forgot about that. Yeah, there was a lot. I watched it work. <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ, really? <laughs> yeah, I really did. I didn't have any time to watch it, so I watched it work. I was like, I was like well, <laughs> we appreciate your sacrifice for our episode. <laughs> so what I discovered, because I went ahead and popped in my disc and I watched it with the director's commentary on oh christ really and i was expecting to hear a lot more like detailed this is what i was trying to pull from this movie and terry and uh what's his face like todd Todd, yeah like there are two reflections of blah 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 no not at all not at all not at fucking all so the like (laughs) therapist psychiatrist woman that's in this movie she is also the producer marion canton she was the she was the producer Yeah. yeah And she literally only played the part in the movie because the actress who was supposed to play that part just didn't show up. So the more I'm digging into the special features on this disc, the more I'm finding out, oh, no, this is not a singular vision at all. This is literally like eight different people's hands in the pot, and you end up with this weird, disjointed, dangerous, (laughs) what the fuck is this movie kind of thing. So I find out that, like, Marion Cantor really just wanted to make a fucking horror movie that was very exploitative, full of sex, full of violence, full of all the tropey stuff because she just knew these movies are popular they sell let's make this movie and she went out raised all the funds for it very diy hired this director who had really only done one movie prior and on his commentary track the entire thing is just so hey tell us more about this scene john um well we shot that uh one afternoon and uh it was tough and uh we we shot it cool thanks for that insight not even the funness (laughs) of david lynch talking about nonsense no not at all not even like that weird you know like notoriously louise lasser in this movie and in other things was apparently a huge fucking handful to work with for a variety of reasons like she was the star of mary hartman mary hartman which they shot 325 fucking episodes of that sitcom in the span of two years oh my god wait how how many 300 and how many? 325 episodes in the span of two years. That's like shooting an episode every other day. A whole ass episode of a TV show like every other day, right? That is insane. That is bananas. Also come to find out, she was married to Woody Allen early in his career. She's like Woody Allen's second wife, and she was in five of his early films, which we mentioned in the last episode that when we covered this. She's gone through some shit, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of reasons why maybe she would be difficult to work with, right? Yeah, she's seen some shit. (laughs) But then listening to this director who literally quit the film midway through because he (laughs) could not fucking work with her, right? And they had to like convince him and beg him to come back and finish the movie when they ask him hey how was it working with louise lasser he was just like well she's a professional and a very nice lady 
<laughs> and that's it, right? So, like, again, I was expecting way more inner thoughts and, like, deep, weird, fucked up bullshit. But he just literally showed up to direct this. Like, it was a job. And he said over and over, like, yep, I was looking for work. And um, the producer came to me and offered me this. So I said, yeah. And that seems to be the case for most people that made this movie. That's disappointing, man. The producer made it because she was like, fuck it, yeah, horror movies are big. I want to make some money. Literally all the stars from Mark Soper all the way through were just like, yeah, fuck it. We, you know, were actors struggling to get roles and this one came our way. So it's the complete opposite of a very singular, auteurish, wild, incompetent vision like, again, The Room or Miami Connection or, you know, movies like that, The Visitor. This movie is the way it is because there were so many hands in the pot and this movie is so disjointed and wild because there were just so many amateurs making it. So it's kind of this weird culmination of all the incompetence and like time constraints and budget and everything else that went into it. I was going to say, and I wanted to like ask you this too, Jeff, Uh because you watched it by yourself, I'm assuming as well. I've seen this movie twice now for this show only watched it both times alone because there's no fucking way else man would ever sit there (laughs) this with me. The difference between this and something like The Room to me is that The Room is not a movie I can sit down and watch by myself. It is just too much of a painful watch and too incompetent for me to really have fun with it without people around me or friends, multiple people where we're all riffing on the movie and this and that. It's too much schadenfreude to like incorporate into your own body at one point in time, yeah. Yes, (laughs) Blood Rage, I have watched twice by myself and had a fucking blast. And yes, it is very incompetent, kind of like Along the Room where it's thinking it's being one thing, but it's not that thing. But also it's fucking wild to me that like apparently there was no direction with this movie because everyone feels like they're bringing the fucking thunder. Even Ted Raimi is the condom salesman in the beginning. Oh my God, I love that guy. Like feels like he's trying his hardest. Yeah, they might've been collecting a paycheck, but like they can't help themselves in trying their hardest anyway. And that's like the difference is I watched this movie by myself and was cackling and having a blast. Jeff, was that kind of what you experienced as well? I did have a blast watching it by myself. And I see what you're saying about the room. Uh, The thing is, I think I don't really get that feeling of like, oh, it's painful to watch the room by myself. It's more of, I just enjoy the experience of watching with others. Whereas this one, I don't think I would necessarily get that feeling. That may be because of some, you know, repressed feelings of nudity in public makes me uncomfortable. (laughs) Even though it it doesn't really. Given if you remember my college days, I had no problem. Jeff, on on that note, I have watched this movie with my mother before. (sighs) And we both were fucking dying, cracking up laughing. So it does work well in crowds. Yeah, I will say, like, I do think I do want to watch this with people next time. Because, like, I do think it would work well with people, you know? To, like, get drunk on, like, a Friendsgiving kind of thing. At the same time, I do understand where you're coming from. Because I also have fucking fun with this movie just by myself. Just by myself. And also, I mean, with, with, of course, with y'all's crap, like, you know, most of most of my friends, actually, I would have a great time watching this with. But it's not one that I, would, I feel like I would have to have someone to watch it with. I, I had a great time watching it by myself. But now, Aaron, the way that you're talking about how it was made, first off, I want to ask, do you know how long it took them to shoot this film? No idea definitively, but I would say probably no more than two weeks. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Doesn't sound like much time. Knowing that they are using this apartment complex, I did find when we first did our first episode that they are redressing the same exact apartment. So they shot everything with it styled to be like the mother's apartment, redressed all of it to be like the woman with the baby, 
and then redressed all of it to be like the teenagers. They're using the same apartment and, you know, there's only so much that you can shoot around an apartment complex like that before you're just getting in the way and night shoots and everything else. And definitely all the stuff at the beginning with the drive-in, that was all shot after the fact, you know. So I I would bet two weeks. I would bet seriously probably a two-week shoot very tight, very fast. Yeah, that makes sense. But it also makes sense the way pretty much all of it turned out, it turned out if that many people were involved and we're all just like, you know, either I think I'm doing great or I just don't give a shit one way or the other. It makes so much sense now thinking back on what I saw. Also, what was crazy, I didn't, so I looked up the guy who like wrote it, Bruce Rubin. So that guy like wrote Jacob's Ladder, which is a great film. Let's halt there because that's the mistake everybody makes. Really? Okay, yeah. So t- yeah, correct me. Not that Bruce Rubin. This is a different Bruce Rubin. <laughs> So the Wikipedia, so the Wikipedia yeah. page. <laughs> it's linked wrong. Yeah, it's linked wrong. Okay, that's good to know, because I was like, this makes no damn sense. <laughs> yeah, so Bruce Rubin that wrote this movie, which he was going as Richard Lambden for this movie, which I don't know where the hell that pin name come from. So he wrote one movie before this, and it was Zapped, which is the hmm. fucking Scott Bayo like teen sex romp from the 80s where he like has telekinesis and just makes girls shirts like pop open so you can see their bras whoop, whoop, whoop. Scott Bayo is that like the uh, uh, Chachi loves Joni or whatever guy <laughs> yes <laughs> Joni loves Chachi yeah yes. whatever his name is yeah so he wrote that movie wrote this and that's it and I think he only gets a writing credit on the zap sequel because of the characters I don't think he actually wrote that screenplay and then he did one episode of the show Recess that all of us watched when we were younger right so like again another example of the writer wrote this movie probably just smacking rails of coke off the dresser and knocked it out in three days and was like here's this movie bye jeff the bruce rubin you're thinking of on wikipedia actually is bruce joel rubin yes and if you go to his actual wikipedia page blood rage is nowhere near as fucking screenplays produced i know i I was looking i looked at the screenplays like it's not listed here it was he embarrassed yeah. of it and so he didn't put it on there i don't i, I don't know no it, he just didn't do it he went uh, brainstorm deadly friend ghost which he got all kinds of recognition for ghost deep impact into jacob's yeah. ladder and then yeah later on deep impact yeah. Stuart little Two, the time traveler's wife i think was the very last thing he wrote well, speaking of uh railing lines of coke i don't know if you saw the line where louise lasser sometime after her marriage to woody allen was arrested for cocaine possession because she was wanting to buy this dollhouse and she didn't have enough money and she would not fucking just leave the dollhouse <laughs> She had cocaine in her purse, and the police, like, apparently, like, why won't you leave with this dollhouse? She wouldn't. They, like, I don't know. Anyway, they found cocaine on her and arrested her. Well, now, was this around 1982 when this movie was being filmed? I think it was 76, if I remember okay. correctly. Now, I don't know what version you watched, Jeff, but for our listeners, I watched the one that's on Tubi, and it is the uncut, uncensored 82-minute version. It's also the one that is kind of confusing because it doesn't have the title card Blood Rage. It has the title card Slasher. <laughs> okay, that's the one. That's the one I watched. Was the yeah. same one. Yeah, I believe yeah. that that is the only copy that is digitally available right now. So if you if you watch this movie on streaming, which it's all over the place, it's on Amazon Prime, it's on Shutter, it's on Tubi, and, and Arrow still has their like weekends of scares things. I mean, I picked this up for like three dollars on iTunes, and like mm. I fucking own this movie digitally now. <laughs> 
And you own the Blu-ray as well. Yeah, you can catch this movie in a bunch of different streaming places, but I believe it is always going to be the like full, unrated, uncut version that Arrow put out a couple of years back. So Hell yeah. I think the only way that you can watch that really super edited version is on the three-disc Arrow Blu-ray. But overall, yeah, speaking of uncut, you know, this movie definitely has, like, some sex and nudity. Nothing extreme, but the gore in this movie is pretty fucking bananas. And I say that having just watched a lot of Friday the 13th movies, because I got that box set. We just did Ravenous. Like. Also, I'm going to I'm gonna have to stop you. I feel like uh, there was one really extreme sex scene, which was when they were having sex on the diving board. That seems so painful. Like, why did they choose the diving <laughs> yeah. board to have sex on? Of all the places. Like, let's Nobody be real. Nobody would do that. If you are having missionary sex on a diving board, I'm not sure mechanically how that would work unless you are just so full-grown, toes-pointed on the diving board, like, arms forward. Like, you have to have some insane body strength to perform that way. Like, that's bananas to me. That's the most unrealistic part of the movie. Beyond that, you are begging to be killed by an evil twin who's masquerading as his good twin who just broke out of a mental sane asylum and you're trying to peg the murders on him again. Yeah. Because you're actually the insane one. Like, yeah, you're begging for that. Or Jason Voorhees to, like, fucking impale you. Yeah, that's just a stupid decision. They didn't They didn't even have a towel on, on, on the diving no. board. It was just straight yeah. up man on top of woman on top of diving board grit. You know how painful. And diving boards always have that grit. That, always. like, sandpaper grip on it. But, yeah, I just watched a shit ton of 80s horror this past month. And you would be surprised how much gets cut. Period. Yeah. Going back and looking at all the Friday the 13th movies and just how many of them are Jason swings machete, person looks up, cut to machete, like in them, cut away, and that's kind of it. And you don't really see the full impact of it. You don't really see the full gore. This movie, and I'm watching it in the background as we're having this conversation, I just saw the part where the psychiatrist woman literally gets fucking cut in half with the machete <laughs> and is just laying on the ground, guts Screaming. pouring out. <laughs> and the scene is Louise Lasser on the phone dialing drunk and like slamming wine you know yeah. no noise in the background to just suddenly this woman screaming on the ground with her guts hanging <laughs> out like this movie's wild it's the closest <laughs> thing to a jump scare in this movie but it's so fucking bananas wild and that cut is so ridiculous that it made me jump for a split second and then fucking laugh out loud because her torso is like moving up and down like an animatronic and yeah. her legs are separated and still moving and I fucking love too earlier like when he cuts off the fiance's hand his hand is still moving and like clutching the beer like as if it's like a fucking lizard's tail it's like that's not how that works well he's like spinning around gripping the fake hand too yeah. while it's just squirting blood going ah, ah just screaming bloody murder right there is such an insane whoa holy shit kind of factor to the gore that so many 80s movies honestly don't really have and and knowing that at this point this is Ed French the guy who did all this all the effects he was also kind of the nerdy guy that the neighbor lady was dating who has the best death by the way yeah he, he definitely has the best death the hanging head in the doorway oh yeah. it was amazing yeah of course the makeup guy is gonna like give himself the best death mm. but he went on to have an insane career in effects and is still doing that kind of work he literally just got done doing fucking westworld and shit like that but looking at that guy's career he has also done sleepaway camp 
which has insane, like, hardcore gore in it, just out of nowhere, with a really weird sensibility to how the gore is shot. And he also did the stuff which we covered. So, like, he has been around this show more than you would expect. It's amazing you brought up both those movies, because something else I was thinking as I was uh, making my way through this watch-through was the two movies that we've covered that are closest to Blood Rage. I shit you not, I thought Sleepaway Camp and the stuff. Like you said, those are, like, the same sensibilities, same acting choices, same writing choices, same ridiculous gore choices in some weird ways, weird fucking sexual choices, at least in Sleepaway Camp. That's the first thing I thought of, too, when I watched this, was that this reminded me so much of Sleepaway Camp in certain ways. Yeah, oh my god. I did did watch that during October again. I I love that movie. It's a good movie, but my god, is it wild? It's wild. But Blood Rage is like that. A fucking wild double feature would be that and Blood Rage back-to-back, and there honestly wouldn't be much of a difference between the two. And Sleepaway Camp has what I mentioned earlier, where it is very much a singular vision from that director. And this movie is kind of a sum of all the creative parts and incompetence thrown in. You know, so I think these make good double features from the standpoint of they're both fucking weird, deal with identity bullshit, have a lot of insane gore, and both just kind of have this wild, unhinged amateur feel to them. Like, they, they would make a good double feature, for sure. I think Sleepaway Camp has one of the single most disconcerting lines of any movie I've ever seen. Trigger warning. It's whenever the cook is like, around here we call them baldies. Uh, like, yeah. holy oh, Aaron shit. And, Aaron and I talk about that on our commentary track. Like, so fucked As up. much as we do like sleepaway camp there's a lot of problematic elements with trying to like yeah. sexually abuse underage girls in that movie like you know i'm glad you know the people get to come up and but it is just so disconcerting yeah yeah it's it's rough man i don't know is there anything actually like that problematic in blood rage no i don't remember anything like that in blood rage that's the thing as much as the producer was just like yeah make it as crazy as we possibly can it's got to be over the top it's got to be insane there's got to be like lots of blood and sex and that's what all the teens want and that's what's going to make this movie successful the gore certainly goes there but i don't necessarily think that the sex does this movie definitely kind of has a weirdly slightly regressive mentality when it comes to the sex in this movie both of the twins are like very sheltered even the killer twin is kind of sort of like yeah i'm down to like go so far but he's generally kind of uninterested in sex and then the other twin obviously has been like locked away and specifically is just like i've never kissed a girl uh <laughs> you know, there's a little bit of weirdness with the mom, but it never really goes to any place that's way off the edge, right? The sex angle of this kind of boils down to like, well, there's the one girl who's, you know, slutty in air quotes. And really, like, it's a bunch of college-age people on Thanksgiving that are all hanging out. This girl's just trying to get wet, right? <laughs> yeah. There's nothing wrong with that. Like, she's just floating from, like, dude to dude to see who's gonna bite, but whatever. Well, and the closest problematic thing I could even think of in this movie is the part where, like, Artie and Karen are finally, like, alone together. They're best friends, but you could tell like Artie has always had a crush on her but like she's always been dating Todd he tries to like nice guy TM his way into like why don't we like do stuff and like why don't I hold you when you didn't ask me to hold you those are really the only minor like kind of weird elements in terms of like problematic stuff but it's really not anything fucking that bad or to write home about and Harvey gets a fucking carving fork in the neck anyway so like yeah <laughs> but yeah I want to tap this vein that we haven't we haven't done yet where you being in the mental health 
called profession. I wanted to talk to you specifically about Dr. Berman and that whole like fucking scene in like the first 20 minutes where she's doing her voiceover like I guess she recorded her note. Her little internal monologue thing. Yeah, yeah. I used my <laughs> skills as a mental health professional to calm the mother down when she did nothing and she just sat there <laughs> nodding as the mother freaked out and calmed herself down. The funny thing I noticed about that, there are a few other like mental health professionals, a few colleagues, rare, rare, but you, you find them. You know, these people who are like are playing a role. Yeah. You know, they, they got into something to play a role. And so I've met some people that are like that, that you can tell they're straight up having that internal monologue in their head as stuff's going down sure. to fit yeah, some yeah. sort of weird, you know, role they perceive they need to fit. The, the whole Sherlock brilliant psychiatrist role or whatever. I laughed so fucking hard when she's like doing her internal monologue slash note that she's going to write later on <laughs> Todd and his mother. Dr. Berman's patient consultation notes, November 22nd, 1984. Saw Maddie Simmons, Todd's mother, for the first time today. I don't think she was quite prepared for what I told her, that after 10 years, Todd was starting to remember what had happened in the drive-in that night. Facing the fact that Todd's memory of the incident cast suspicion on his twin brother, Terry, was not that easy for her. On Terry? What, are you crazy? Her position on another issue was also somewhat negative. No, no, no more tests, no more tests. My children are not guinea pigs. Maddie in the scene is flipping out and throwing shit. And then the next voiceover is something like, My past work with hysterical patients helped me calm her down. Though calmer, Maddie's level of resistance was still quite high. And it's literally her just standing, sitting there <laughs> nodding, and Maddie calms herself down. It's like, you didn't do anything. Like, what the fuck are you talking about? I cracked it so hard, and Maddie, she's just screaming, you know, this half-hearted, like, no, no, no. And then she just immediately, like, calms down. Yeah. yeah. Out of nowhere. There's no gradual transition or anything. It's just 10 to 1. That whiplash is most of her role in this movie. Yeah. That's exactly how she acts throughout the movie. I will say this. Obviously, anything I say, I'm not trying to disparage these individuals. Literally the only time I've ever seen an individual react in that manner has been when I've worked with some autistic individuals who, again, were almost emulating a role they saw on TV. Yeah. And I've never actually seen that otherwise. And it was just such a weird sort of, yeah, like you said, whiplash back and forth. One last thing I wanted to ask you about Dr. Berman. Really, how fucking fast would you be fired from your position, Jeff, if instead of letting the police or whoever try and handle track him down, you grabbed a random like nurse or help? from your fucking psych ward. That's exactly what I was about to ask. Gave them a tranquilizing oh gun and went to the fucking property yourself with this one jack-off who seems incompetent as hell with a gun to track down the missing twin yourself. And I love that he has the tranquilizer gun, but she has a real revolver that we see later. I, I say real revolver. It's clearly like a fucking spray-painted toy revolver, <laughs> but it is positioned as a real revolver. And, and of course, they show up with guns brandished at the front door of the apartment and Louise what's Lasser, that gun you know, what's that gun hey, I got him doc put that gun down it's his twin can't you see you're Terry aren't you don't worry about the gun it's only a tranquilizer gun now listen I'm Dr. Berman I'm from the institute I want to see your mother Dr. Berman yeah. did you find him no I haven't even looked yet what's that gun 
It's okay, Mom. Yeah, they straight up, like, SWAT team this house. Dude, if that happened, she should be fired. Although, in reality, I would be put on probation. And the, the tech that followed me around and thought this was a good idea would have been immediately fired and probably, yeah. like, charges <laughs> brought against them. I mean, I, I don't know. That was that was so wild. I love to see non-medical personnel's interpretation of what would happen in the medical field. Especially <laughs> in the psychiatric. Like, it's, it's, it's so amazing how off-kilter of what their expectations of what would happen. <laughs> like, who the fuck goes and chases after a patient with a gun? Well, <laughs> I am personally nowhere near the medical field, and I definitely know that's fucked up and weird, <laughs> and nobody does that. <laughs> so, Jeff, you're telling me you don't get, like, patients all the time that are twins, and one of them is a murderer, but also might be the innocent one, actually? Uh... I mean, I'm not at liberty to discuss that. Also, <laughs> you don't have parents bringing pumpkin pie to their kids who just crumble it up in rage and throw it against the wall. Yeah, uh, I did have a guy. He was on our most what we call the acute unit with all the. Are, the are we about to commit HIPAA here, Jeff? No, yes. no, 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 no HIPAA, no HIPAA. I'm not going to use anything that should identify him. But he, um, I seem just so neurotypical and everyone else in there is like literally, you know, I mean, I hate to say it again, they're, you know, like crapping on the floor or writing books with words that don't exist, things like that. And this fellow, he seems like very bright and he just tells me, yeah, I was transferred from the wrong unit and, you know, he's like very charming and everything. It kind of set off some like alarm bells, like it's weird that he was transferred over here. Turns out he was a straight up serial killer who, or, okay. Anyway, he basically like, like. Anyway, he, he was he is serial killer, straight up serial killer. Weird. We may cut all this because uh, people I think cut. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Don't. I, I can edit around that. Don't yeah, worry about yeah, it. Edit around that. This won't give anything away. Uh, speaking of twins, it has nothing to do with horror, but we did one time get two people who were delusional. One was delusional that they were an agent of ISIS, and this other guy was on the unit was delusional that he was a CIA agent hunting ISIS. Oh man, lunch between the two of them must have been awkward. <laughs> they were the same age, young males, and they both. Both wound up in the same room and the nurses didn't realize this they put him as roommates oh yeah and yeah within like four hours we were like you guys gotta separate this this is not a good uh, situation here some spy versus spy shit so something else since it being this a uh, second viewing for me i was looking for details this time around too yeah something yeah. i noticed aaron i know if you've seen this movie you said like seven or eight times now i don't know yeah. if you've ever caught this but in the scene where Artie and terry are searching for todd they discover the fucking like tools that terry has been using to murder everyone around but he does like it's not cranberry sauce line that isn't cranberry sauce already yeah leading up to like him about to stab Artie, like if you look close enough over terry's shoulder there's a random person there's a random like technician in the background who's in yep. the shot <laughs> like you can Oops. see them like you really have to be looking for it because it's like in the background it's kind of blurry but like you can easily see like their arm and leg and you can see them doing something and then like realizing just from the body movements them realizing they're in the shot and going like oh shit and like yeah. diving out of the way i caught that only because i was watching it on tubi and i was actually watching it on my laptop this time so i had the screen close to my eyes and i was noticing just this weird movement in the background i'm like who the fuck is that and i rewatched that scene like three times totally someone in the shot so dr jeff yeah what can you tell us about how catatonia works because so that was the one of the first things i thought about the like let's kill somebody let's frame my brother by just shoving machete axe into his hand rubbing blood on his face and pointing yeah while people are running up to 
you. No one saw that. And first off, yeah, there was 20 people staring at him as he like straight up was wiping blood on his brother. <laughs> so so first off, that was one of the first things that struck me. I was like, this dude's not reacting. This is not how catatonia works. At least not catatonia yeah. I've ever seen. Catatonia tends to be a much more gradual condition that, you know, they kind of slip into. You know, we used to think of catatonia as a type of schizophrenia. The, there was the term catatonic schizophrenia that was used back in the day before the updated DSM-5 and all this other stuff. But now we're kind of seeing it more along the lines of a really, really bad version of depression that the brain doesn't respond to. But yeah, this guy just immediately goes catatonic within like five seconds. That's not how catatonia works at all. Yeah, that, <laughs> okay. that almost seems like a massive panic attack or anxiety attack. Because like the times where I've gone catatonic has been under like super extreme anxiety. It was never like sustained or like it happened. And then like I was like that for days. But it was a buildup. Like there was still somewhat of a buildup. It wasn't totally sudden where like I was dealing with a ton of anxiety and just got progressively worse to the point where I just became unresponsive. Yeah, yeah. An acute stressor like that shouldn't cause catatonia, especially not where the guy can like straight up, you know, put a sword in his hand. He's not reacting at all and doesn't remember what happened and takes like, you know, years of therapy to bring out these repressed memories. To my knowledge, from what I've seen in my experience, catatonia does not tend to work anything like that. (laughs) Good to know. The biggest thing I noticed was you talked about the condom salesman. I mean, did you notice that he straight up had these massive pins, like sticking the condoms to his jacket? Yes. Let's just call that the samples, I guess, because he pulled some out of the other pocket to actually give the guy. He did. But yeah, that's, yeah, you're maybe not supposed to do that at all with condoms. So yeah, Jeff, I don't know if you caught this earlier when I mentioned it. That guy is played by fucking Ted Raimi, Sam Raimi's brother, who's also pretty successful. Yeah, like Evil Dead, like you've been watching. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, So like, that's the wild fucking thing about this movie that Aaron kind of like educated me on when we did it the first time around was that you have a lot of people who like didn't really do much of anything after this in their career in general but then you have fucking people like Ted Raimi who like I think Aaron you told me he still kind of points to this movie of giving him his first dip into the industry and like he kind of took off from there and then you have the art guy who still is doing makeup effects big budget shit and he was in fucking blood rage as like the best kill in the movie it's kind of wild that so many weird names that are kind of all over Hollywood had a little bit of experience with this fucking movie. Yeah, yeah. Now I see his picture. This is a guy I've seen in a lot of movies that I just didn't realize that was Sam Raimi's brother. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. If you're watching through Evil Dead stuff, he's in the second movie for sure. And he's been in pretty much all of Sam Raimi's stuff since then to varying degrees. What did he do in Twin Peaks? He was a character in season two of the original show. And I believe he was only in one episode. He maybe shows at the beginning of another one, but he is somebody who is killed by the villain in the second season. Yeah, yeah. He is very, very briefly in it. So this movie, again, like, there's so much that I like about this movie despite its clunkiness, and there's so many weird idiosyncratic bits and pieces that I enjoy about it. Like, this is a movie that's shot in fucking Jacksonville, Florida. Yeah, I was about that. to say that. that. In fucking Every time I see that, it brings a smile to my face, and it's in fucking Jacksonville, Florida. That's part of the course. Yeah, and you would never really 
think that it was a movie shot in Jacksonville, but there is just kind of this weird everyday trashiness to the movie, like Jeff was saying. Like, you can imagine that probably all these college kids, if they didn't all fucking die in this movie, they would just <laughs> go back to class the next week and go to their, like, shitty jobs working at, like, Smoothie King and the campus bookstore partying on the weekends, and that's kind of it. And Louise Lasser would just continue to, like, be wine drunk every other day, do what with her life, dot, 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 just vacuum. Vacuum. Eat shit off the floor. Clean the <laughs> oven that's already clean. Yeah. Call the operator. So, like, something I was battling with, and I wanted to get y'all's ideas. I tried so hard again, because, like, the first time I couldn't really, like, quite narrow it down. What is Terry's motivation for, like, fucking going into blood rage? Like, I'm convinced that he is just triggered any time that his mom is wanting to fuck. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's I think it's very Freudian. Like, it's a very Freudian thing where, in, in, in some Freudian interpretations of dreams, where you are angry at your mom, you know, the way he would interpret it, and in this dream you strangle a female figure, but it's not your mom, but it's, it's a more palatable um, substitution for your mom instead but you take out this uh, suppressed anger onto this other object and so that's the only thing i can figure is that you know he's seeing this guy going to town on this girl in this car and it's reminding him of what his mom's doing and instead of messing with his mom's boyfriend or hurting her he goes all out on this other guy as sort of a substitute then like fucking however many 15 20 years later like it never happened again like where his mom wanted to date someone (laughs) and he just lost his mind and killed people that's the thing i can't understand with terry is there are points when his his mom wants to have sex or date like he flies off this rage and but Todd's out now he has a convenient excuse yeah I guess I can never forget if does Terry actually like care about or like having sex leading up to this he had a steady girlfriend but they kind of imply that they haven't he's been distanced consummated that relationship yeah. yet at the same time he doesn't seem like he gives even a shit about sex and even finds sex annoying otherwise unless it's mom and in that case he fucking hates sex so I'll say I'll say this I think they actually did a slightly good job on representing like psychopathic pathology with this guy as far as like his blah attitude toward sex i think the best example and back me up jeff if i'm like i'm on to something here i think the best example of that is like when he does decide to like meet up with that girl who is like obviously like throwing the line out to see if he wants to bone down and he goes and meets with her like and she's like okay cool we're gonna make this happen we're gonna hook up let's fuck and he just keeps pushing her out of the way to watch tv and he's just like yes, this is yeah. awesome like what you fucking watch this tv exactly which what movie is that by the way aaron on the tv that they're watching with like the body coming out and then someone getting attacked that movie is the movie that was written and produced by this movie's director he didn't direct it but it was the one movie that he was kind of involved with before this okay that they like had the rights to show essentially it's also the movie that's playing at the drive-in at the beginning of the movie because i'm fucking fascinated by that movie now but anyway that whole part where like she's like obviously like let's bone down and he's showing no interest and way more interested in like the horror movie on the tv like that felt very much like a this is kind of like a ted bundy sociopathic kind of feeling it is that's and i actually thought they did a good job with that it's one of the few things i thought they somewhat got on the right track and i even i know someone who i used to consider uh, a friend who over the years i realized i think this guy is a legit psychopath not someone who i think would ever be violent but um someone who i actually do think is a psychopath and i have seen that person exhibit similar behaviors toward people and especially in romantic relationships 
I've definitely seen like you met that person where like immediately red flags go off. You can kind of mm-hmm. see it behind their eyes because it's kind of like that study, which you probably know exactly which one I'm talking about, Jeff, where they looked at sociopathic tendencies and found that Fortune 500 CEOs and like hyper yeah. good yeah. athletes yeah. Like, <laughs> had the same personalities as like Ted Bundy and serial killers like that. And this person is a very high functioning person as well, like very successful. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because there were elements where I did feel with Terry like was kind of going that serial killer route, like you said, high functioning sociopath. But again, I just was just puzzled by like in the 15, 20 years since he basically threw Todd under the bus and Todd got institutionalized. Never once did he like kill anyone or like he goes from zero to 60 so fucking quick in this movie. Like talking about movies that waste no time. This movie wastes no fucking time, man. He is going on that killing spree like 20, 30 minutes in, which I don't remember the first time around. Like I felt like it was quicker the second watch through. Like we get to him murdering someone like pretty quickly, but just him going zero to 60 this quickly and just it seems so natural to him. I was just like, you can't tell me over like the several years that he's never done this again. Yeah. And his mom has never seen anyone else. Come on. Or that there's, there's no history or build up to like what he was like before this. I mean, it just triggered out of the blue with no other history of what did this kid do before? Very strange. You brought up a good point. Like, I guess maybe because it's like his mom finally like committing as well as hearing the news of his brother escaping. Those two things, I guess, triggered him to be like, all right, time to kill all my friends who I assume he spent a ton of time with. Yeah. Yeah. He kills Artie like it's goddamn nothing and then like makes the cranberry sauce joke like twice with his dead body. Dude, he loves that joke. I love that joke. It's not cranberry sauce, Artie. Here's a wild curveball as well. So let's hypothesize that his rage is blood rage. Blood rage. Has nothing to do with the mom. It has everything to do with Todd. Let's say that the motivation is actually, hey, fuck this brother. Fuck having to always wear the same clothes as him and go the same places as him and do the same things as him because we're twins and we're attached in that twin way. I want to be my own person. Fuck this. And what if it was purely a like let me get brother out of the picture thing and so now what triggered him again was the brother coming back and he's like no i've been perfectly cool living my own life for the past fucking decade i want to go back to being the only fucking person you know all of his friends only know him as terry and apart from his other brother you know like the twins that i have known in my life they are pretty attached And you don't really, like, think of one without thinking of the other in a lot of cases. And so, you know, let's say that maybe this was all motivated from the standpoint of, I need to get my brother back out of the fucking picture again to live my own goddamn life like I want. Maybe that's the motivation. That's a good point. The only thing I have to say, though, that goes against that is the fact that, like, when his mom's boyfriend announces that they're engaged and they're going to marry, he just immediately goes into, like, fuck all of this and gets quiet and menacingly and like even the soundtrack kind of like yeah which i forgot how great the soundtrack is by the way but anyway like even the soundtrack bumps up like all of a sudden his psycho switch is now flipped before we start brad and i have an announcement to make come on you tell them well we're gonna tie the knot. Congratulations, Mom. Oh, Terry. Oh, Terry. I love you so much. Oh, that's really nice. 
Congratulations. I'm happy for you both. I really am. Thanks. <laughs> I guess the toast is in order. Uh, oh, a toast. <laughs> Here's to the new family. Well, I'd say that this big bird is ready for carving. Terry, you do the honors. Well, seeing as how we have a new head of the family, I think it's time you started pulling your own weight around here. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. Again, this goes back to like my whole thing of like, what the fuck is Terry's motivation actually in this movie? <laughs> yeah, who knows then? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that, I think that's a good point too, Aaron. And I also like I agree with you, day one, on the fact that I don't think that would be his primary motivation. Of course, with five different people pick it and making the movie, I mean, who who the fuck knows what his motivation is yeah. really? <laughs> <laughs> and, and I mean, he acts like he's been here before so well in this movie, and I'm assuming he's known these people he's murdering and been quote unquote friends with them for years now and he is murdering them like he's Jason Voorhees and he has no idea who these fucking kids are and they're all annoying him and he hates sex. It's ridiculous. And I want to take a quick second here to, you know, we've been using the term sociopath and psychopath to clear that up actually. Yeah, yeah, do that for us. Yeah, because I know a lot of people, a lot of, most people don't know the difference between those two things. So, uh, psychopath, that's more like American Psycho. You know, someone who is high functioning, doesn't have any empathy, but is in very high functioning intelligent and can act it out they can act out that role when they need to and then switch off whereas a sociopath you can think of it as the name itself a pathology in the psyche like a sick psyche a sick brain they don't have the areas necessary that work to to generate that empathy and about one percent of the population especially in males tend to have that whereas a sociopathic you think of it like pathology in society and how they act in society i work at uh, jail and i see a lot of sociopaths where you can tell they do care about people People, but their life circumstances and things of that nature, they've had to survive and they've learned to become manipulative, but they can grow attachments. Yeah. They're the, your prisoners, your lower functioning, people who get into trouble a lot, but they still can have empathy and like in a situation like this you wouldn't see a sociopath going around and like point blank and just killing all their friends that that would be very unlikely whereas a psychopath on the other hand you know you know i'd still argue that like terry like would never raise a finger to his actual mom though yeah that's true even that's during true. this blood rage that's true i don't think he would ever actually kill his mom yeah um and i think there's something there because he even comes back like he could very well killed his mom multiple times in this movie and he never does and you know i think it might be a little bit of like he can use her because he knows she he trusts him and loves him more than Todd and he knows that like she thinks it's Todd doing all of this but like at the same time I still think push comes to shove he couldn't kill her but he has no trouble still killing his friends which this is also great because this movie is also technically a spree killing <laughs> like even though it's like him just walking around fucking stabbing people with goddamn turkey forks and stuff in this seemingly empty apartment complex except for that one little like eight year old girl who's just by her fucking self looking for her cat yeah on Thanksgiving just by herself seemingly Chekhov's gone when fucking Todd tells her like don't leave the house and don't let anyone in no matter what and then Karen can't get into oops but my favorite kill in this movie by far I don't know if it's the same as y'all is Dr. Berman's goddamn dumbass sidekick yes that is my favorite kill too hey bro you wanna hit a weed totally favorite kill to Terry's credit he's like yeah fuck yeah man let me hit that shit oh by the way knife through your goddamn stomach why did the tech um what was it he 
said. He, like, said something that was made no sense. Well, he's trying to bait Todd with weed, by the way. Well, not only that, he literally tells Terry, Todd never killed anybody. Isn't that the damnedest yeah. thing? He thinks it was you. He thinks yeah. it was you. Yeah, like, why would you do that? Born victim, like, born fucking victim that guy is. <laughs> On top of all that, Terry was hiding this fucking machete behind his back. Yeah. Huge-ass machete. Just casually standing there like, what you got behind your back? Nothing. Uh, nothing. Just... Yeah, sure, yeah, born victim. The thing that fucking makes me laugh even harder is after he kills a guy, he still has the blunt, and he just walks off with the blunt smoking yeah. with the goddamn machete <laughs> in it. Like, that's the thing I love about him as a slasher. He is so goddamn nonchalant. He is begging to be caught. This popped off to me a lot more this go-around on the second viewing. Why the fuck does no one just call the police? Ever. Why is no one calling the police in this? Ever. Fucking never in this movie. Yeah, little girl that was sent home and told there is a bad guy out in the woods. You would think Todd would also just be like, and go call the police. But whatever, nobody else in this fucking movie calls the police either. Dr. Berman and Maddie and Maddie's boyfriend slash fiance are the biggest. What the fuck are y'all doing? And all their <laughs> friends too. Like, it wasn't like Terry cut all the phone lines, which to her credit, she finally does. But like Terry is in the middle of stalking her when she does finally. But like, Christ, man. And and Dr. Berman and the tech, I mean, they do the classic split up. Like, why the hell? The the whole point of them going to search for him, you know, as a pair was safety in numbers. And then they fucking split up after he started killing people. Well, I guess they didn't know that. Maybe they didn't know that at that time. I can't remember. There was also a line that was very much in the vein of, you remember in the room whenever, whenever the mom comes in, she's like, well, that's... That's it. The test come back. I, I definitely have breast cancer. Yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it's whenever um, the girl is talking to, she thinks she's talking to Terry, but she's talking to Todd. And she's like, look, you know, I love you. And you know what? Um, I think it's time to have sex. Yeah. <laughs> you know, she's just yeah. like, just so matter of fact, like, well, I think it's time to have sex. Well, look, um, <clears throat> you know, we've both been away at school and I don't know, we haven't talked to each other, you haven't written me any letters, and I've hardly even seen you since you've gotten back. And, I don't know, Terry, I just love you a lot, and, well, I want you to make love to me. You're shocked, huh? (laughs) Well, Terry, come on, I wish you'd say something. I'm not Terry. I'm Todd. Um, Terry's brother? Oh, my God. I mean, um, so you're home for the holidays, huh? You seem nice. I've never kissed a girl before. Oh, yeah? Well, um, you really ought to try it sometime. I gotta go. Bye. Before that, she deposits, yeah, and you know, you've been really distant lately and strange and not talking yeah. to me. By the way, like, you actively hit on this other girl right in front of my face, like, in dinner and this afternoon when we were playing football. But, like, I'm ready. Let's have sex. It's fucking absurd. Another thing that also, like, popped out to me is, is it just me or is Terry have some goddamn snappy one-liners? Because when he's <laughs> yeah, chasing yeah, Karen around and, like, he walks in on the people he killed who, like, had sex, he's like, whoops, oh, sorry, guys, 
didn't mean to like disturb you. Yeah, that whole entire sequence where he's just chasing Karen around from place to place, and she just so happens to run to the exact places where he's already murdered somebody so she can see where he's posed the bodies, and then he somehow, again, fucking Michael Myers just always beats her there to like throw a snappy one-liner out. That whole sequence is ridiculous because it's just her screaming and running around, finding dead bodies, screaming more, running around, and it just becomes laughable after a while. It's great. That entire sequence is fucking great, yeah. And you're right, Terry like straight up teleports in that goddamn sequence because he is walking after her. Like, yeah, it's that brisk like slasher movie horror walk, but you know, like in other slasher movies, the person running from them like trips and stumbles and like they're giving the killer every chance to catch up. No, this movie doesn't do that. Like Karen is quickly moving away as Terry's just kind of nonchalantly walking towards her. But then you're right. He's just there as soon as like she finds a body screams. He he shouts out a one-liner and she like fucking escapes again. But yeah, kind of going back to the kills, the makeup guy definitely has like the best dead body. But again, like Dr. Berman's tech has the best actual death. Next best death though is already just because like carving fork in the neck and then it's not cranberry sauce already. (laughs) It's not cranberry sauce. God, and just him like, ah, the way he's going so over the top with that struggle is hilarious. And I love how, like, they're cutting back to his feet. It looks like Terry is literally picking him up full body by the fucking like fork in the neck and his feet are just like dangling hitting the planks of wood on that walkway and then it cuts back to them and he's clearly like falling into Terry's arms you know all over the place like there's no way but just the way that it's edited is so fucking bananas and I think that's the big thing too about the entire movie as far as the like non sequitur nature of so much stuff and wait how did they get from here to here and where did this character go and wait this thing was like this in this very last scene so much of it is just the editing and the like well fuck like we've only got these pieces we'll make it work like it's fine just put it all together nobody will notice it won't be that big of a deal and that's some of the most wild shit in the entire movie jeff what did you think about that ending oh god whenever they're both shouting i'm todd i'm todd i'm todd (laughs) (laughs) and louise lasser fucking commits suicide it's a dark fucking ending that was a twist i was not expecting that i'll be honest with you that that one got me man that was some good shit well it's a bleak ending and dark ending but done again and such like this movie can't help itself with being so goddamn it was just weird man (laughs) weird came out of goddamn nowhere yeah i know like regardless one thing is i could not figure out why she kept confusing them other than just being in so under so so much stress but you know it's very obvious which one's todd and which one's terry like it should be to her the mom who's been visiting terry uh or, or yeah todd off and on like all the time in the in the hospital he's wearing the exact same shirt he has for apparently like years you know like i I don't know it's just weird also is that one couple the one that's they're like drink trying to drink some wine together and they're like dressed all fancy are they dating or are they married i could not figure that out so they're they're definitely dating yeah because the woman makes a joke about i'm gonna get you a rich daddy to the baby yeah okay i didn't hear that yeah she's a single mom and when she goes in the back to put on her lingerie to like seduce him and he gets murdered off screen and that's the makeup effects guy ed french yeah yeah yeah. something else that i and i know i brought this up when we 
recorded on our first episode about this. When the fiance, when Maddie's boyfriend goes to his office, because he's manager of this place, which I forgot until <laughs> um, when he goes to his office, I guess, to wait around until fucking Todd shows up. Like, what is he doing in his office? Like, manning the phones? Anyway, <laughs> when he's in there and he puts on, like, that Bible radio station and, like, it's a preacher. So I brought this up to Aaron. I was like, what was that preacher saying on the station? And right after he gets his hand cut off, there's something in the scripture that and the, the guy is saying on the radio, an eye for an eye and a hand for a hand before the scene <laughs> yeah. cuts. Like, and I was like, oh, that was intentional. Good choice, Blood Rage. That one got me pretty fucking good this time around. There's also that fucking MC Escher drawing of the hand holding the orb that's like yeah. right above the desk too. Yeah, The movie goes for cheekiness when it wants to. It just doesn't really commit to that all the way through necessarily. So I, I wish that there was more of that. Honestly, like because yeah, those those are good fucking guys. Yeah, I wish there was more of that goofiness in the movie. All said and done, yeah, there's still a couple of things that I, I also was trying to figure out. Oh, well, go ahead. Let's, they, let's yeah, just it. a couple things. Well, there was a, one another awkward scene. It's when they were cutting a turkey and they're like trying to do a prayer. I don't remember what they were doing. Anyway, it was the way that Laster Maddie says, "Dig in, everybody, dig in," and then she pauses and like the guy's still like awkward to the other stuff. Yeah, the, I mean on the other <laughs> stuff. <laughs> Listen, dig in, everybody. Dig in. I mean, on the other stuff. Oh, great. Great. Okay. That is so absolutely awkward. <laughs> Leading into that other scene, to your point, Jeff, we just cut from like them playing football in the afternoon to them all at Thanksgiving, and they're all just laughing at some off-air yeah. joke that everyone yeah. is trying way too hard <laughs> to act like they're laughing, and it's ridiculous. Yeah, that was so funny. Whoever did the uh, Terry's hairdo was um that was a very nice touch. Cause he has almost no sideburns. Ooh, all the hair in this movie is wild. Well, it made it made him look. You know, you see. Those Charlie Kurt memes with his face that it's much smaller. <laughs> the entire time, that's all I could think of. I was like, he's straight up like a Charlie Kurt meme. Just yeah, yeah. his his face is getting smaller on his head the bigger his hair is. Oh yeah. god, now I'm just picturing that picturing goddamn fucking Mark Soper. Uh, the last thing that was popping out to me is whenever Karen ran back to the pool and saw those people dead, and she's sitting there with a the baby trying to hush it, and then when Mark Soper comes in. And he just starts jumping up and down on the diving the board. Diving that yeah. was amazing. I was like, that is the most... I loved that. I don't know why. It's a good villain scene, honestly. Like, it's just a good someone stalking you. And, like, they know they have the upper hand or they're being overconfident. But they also know they are being overconfident on purpose. And he's just, like, fucking doing that on the diving board. Right. And I love her acting choice. Because, like, instead of her straight up, like, going full-blown screaming, she just goes, oh, God. Almost like, oh, God, not again. <laughs> yeah. Because like this is more like, of this shit. shit. This is like the fourth time where she thought she escaped him, and he just appears and says some fucking crazy dumbass one liner. <laughs> I just never thought that they would have been able to add in like the main villain jumping on a diving board over and over and make it <laughs> at all effective. Yeah, it was one of the only, like more effective things in the movie, and it still. I mean, it wasn't super effective, but it was still. It was good. It was good. Yeah, because at the end of the day, like, what is he gonna do? He's gonna have to turn around on the diving board and walk back off the diving board yeah. carefully, yeah. and then run around the pool. It's not like he was gonna like haha and like sproing over to the end of the <laughs> pool and block her from getting to the door or something dramatic like that no he's just gotta fucking turn around and like shimmy back off the thing again he knows he's fucking around but he's having a good time oh 
Oh yeah, he is. He's having a jolly old good time. <laughs> the one last thing that I was trying to look at too, and Aaron, maybe you can back me up on this a little bit or whatever because you've seen the movie so many times, but I think there is a point where Maddie does realize Terry is the one who's actually doing all this, but she just can't. Yeah, she can't wrap her head around. Yeah, she yeah. can't mentally deal with that. So she's still blaming Todd in the end. Yeah. Still like to the point where like, say it actually when she shoots Terry, it was actually Todd. She did think it was Todd and she like saved Terry. I feel like it would turn into a situation where like Psycho, where like the mother, like she helps Terry get out of this basically because she just can't accept reality. Sure. In a more competently written movie, I think it would have been explored more, but I think there were elements of Maddie's character realizing that like Terry is the one who's really fucked in the situation and Todd's completely innocent. Yeah. Yeah. And that certainly could have been like a path to doing a sequel. And I'm surprised, honestly, knowing, okay, the producer wanted to make a hit horror movie and just take advantage of the fads at the time. Why didn't they go that path from the beginning and there be the like, who's it, what's it, which one is which? And then it turns out, oh no, the mom killed the wrong one. And then, you know, dun, 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 Terry lives on. And then we have a blood rage too. Yeah, I'm kind of surprised it didn't go the more obvious route because let's be real, the mother shooting the killer's son and then fucking committing suicide is not at all the ending that you're expecting right not for this goddamn movie no yeah no it ends so fucking dark for where the rest of this movie is kind of pitched so i'm genuinely kind of surprised that it didn't go the more obvious route going back to any scenes that were you know problematic actually i totally forgot were you mentioning the scene where karen's friend Artie? yeah Artie tries to get yeah, close yeah, yeah. to her on the dock yeah yeah yeah, yeah. but yep. do you remember the scene and i don't remember which male actor it was where Karen is like freaking out in the car or, or she's just worried and then straight up one of them like tries to go in and kiss her and she's like what yes. are you doing and then he was yeah. like oh I'm just trying to calm you down yeah so that was the scene I was actually thinking of that was the scene mildly okay. problematic I can remember if it was Artie or the other fuck up guy who was the one who actually did that yeah I can't remember yeah, either yeah just more dudes being awful yeah <laughs> yeah I think it was the other guy not Artie to be fair Th- that was just so out of nowhere I thought I thought it was pretty funny um just cause of how out of nowhere that was like I'm trying I'm gonna kiss you to calm me down so jeff i wanted to like test out the thing you said earlier mm-hmm. on the blood rage wikipedia written by bruce rubin when you click the bruce rubin like it brings <laughs> you to the wrong bruce rubin it brings you to bruce joel rubin i feel like someone did that on purpose yes probably blood rages bruce rubin did that on purpose yeah uh, yeah that's that's a possibility part of me wants to go and fix it but then the other part of me is like nah dog let's keep this <laughs> going <laughs> nah dog that's great uh keep it that way yeah because even on imdb blood rage is not on his writing yeah. credit but yeah so jeff any final thoughts about blood rage are you uh happy we showed you this yeah yeah i'm definitely gonna watch it again i thought it was i thought it was good and i probably will watch it with some friends and discuss it more i kind of want to watch it with some of my psychiatry friends yeah absolutely it was a fun it was a fun movie good pick great for thanksgiving great thanksgiving horror movie yeah is there any other um thanksgiving horror movies Uh, very very few surprisingly few and they are not movies that look fun it's just stuff like thanks killing with a turkey puppet so like nothing with like you know zombie pilgrim or anything or nah nah you would think there would be way more thanksgiving horror and frankly like maybe i just need to take it on myself to write that thanksgiving horror script and uh, get that out into the world yeah i feel like this is something you and lamplu could do but yeah there's a surprisingly little which is why we're doing this movie again (laughs) and we wanted to bring you on for
for it. Yep. Wanted to have someone else on here for spread the joy. Highly appreciate it. I highly appreciate it. Cool, cool. All right. Well, that's once again Blood Rage revisited. Hell yeah. <laughs> we are Watch If You Dare, a horror movie podcast. You can find the, our podcast at all the major podcatchers. Podbean website has a link to all of that. We're on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, Stitcher, all that stuff. Please rate, review, subscribe, especially on Apple. Thanks again to your little brother, Jesse Mansfield, for our intro and outro bumps. Please check out all his stuff at Party Gator at Bandcamp. Please remember that we will keep our Spotify playlist up. Um, it is pin linked to our Twitter. Um, so just go there to check it out. Thanks again, Jeff, for coming on for Blood Rage. I'm glad you liked this movie yeah. as much as Aaron and I do. Loved it. And I always love talking with you, too, as well. It's always a fun time. Cool, cool. Well, I think there's only one way to end this episode, and that is to say... Sally, that's not cranberry sauce. That's not cranberry sauce. (laughs) I think that's how we ended it last time, so perfect. Hell yeah.